Please stand for the scripture reading. Today it's in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkenness, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Well, good morning. It is truly a joy to be bringing God's word to you this morning. And uh, as you've noticed, um, we're going to be departing from our, our normal study through the book of Matthew and going to be looking instead at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And if you're not already there, I'd, I'd encourage you to turn there because we're going to be walking through that passage this morning. So Paul begins there by writing, or do you not know? And the foundational question we have to ask ourselves as we approach this text is, who? You who? Who is it that Paul is talking to? Well, again, we're jumping in the middle of 1 Corinthians. And the foundational question that, um, or the answer to that foundational question of who Paul's audience is, is the church at Corinth. And to put it simply, Corinth was an important city in the ancient world. Uh, for those of you who may be familiar with, uh, with the geography of Greece, the northern part of Greece is connected to the southern part of Greece by a narrow land bridge. It's only a handful of miles wide. And Corinth was situated on that land bridge. So all the, the trade flowing north to south, south to north would go through the city of Corinth. Because of this, a lot of wealth went into the city, um, a lot of culture. And because of this, one, one person said that in Paul's day, Corinth was the very glory of Greece. On the other hand, though, this prominence, this glory, had a dark side to it. Corinth also had a reputation for immorality, for debauchery, for, for gross sexual sin. A temple to Aphrodite overlooked the city of Corinth, and uh, it was known not only for obvious adultery, it's a, it's a pagan temple, but also for its hundreds of male and female prostitutes. Because of this, in addition, to be calling, in addition to being called the glory of Greece, it's also been called the most notorious city in the ancient world. And the term to Corinthianize became a term meaning to be sexually immoral. And Paul, the apostle Paul, is writing to a church that lives in this mess. He's writing to a church body who shops, works, worships, takes care of their families in the middle of that environment. And I wish I could say that as we, as we read through 1 Corinthians, we find that Paul has, you know, is encouraging them and saying, great job, you're doing so good, you're holding out. 
But uh, unfortunately, we see that, that uh, Paul is addressing a lot of issues going on in their church. Yes, to shepherd, uh, we see this throughout 1 Corinthians, he's shepherding a body that's flirting with sin and worldliness and, and false teaching. Throughout the letter, he has to address their divisive spirit, their involvement with and tolerance of sexual immorality, their abuse of the Lord's Supper, their disorderly conduct, and even the denial by some of the resurrection of Christ itself. We don't want to excuse this sin. We don't want to say that, okay, it's, it's okay that they compromise in these areas. But we can acknowledge that they did, in fact, have a heavy weight of an anti-God sin-celebrating culture on them. Um, as we consider their, their situation, uh, they would be passing prostitutes in the street. They would be surrounded by pagan festivals. They would see the celebration instead of the condemnation of drunkenness and sexual immorality. They would see the open acceptance and practice of homosexuality. Everywhere that they would look, they would see a former life that's deceptively calling them back to the so-called sweetness of sin. Just like the adulteress in Proverbs 7 who says, Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. My husband isn't at home. He's gone on a long journey. But then the book of Proverbs uh, in a few verses reminds us, her way really goes down to the chambers of death itself. So we need to ask ourselves this. Have we really come a long way since that time? Um, Certainly they were facing temptation. Certainly there was a lot of corruption in their culture, but do we have reason to say that our culture is really that much better? In fact, the reality is that modern culture seems to be bent on rebelling against God and inventing as many perversions as possible. If it's unnatural, if it's grotesque, it's good according to our culture and we're bigoted or we're oppressors if we disagree. I mean, uh, runs the gamut from gay marriage to abortion to transgenderism to now the celebration of pregnant men. I'm sure many others could be mentioned. Our culture has repeatedly demonstrated its commitment to perverting God's good law. So just as the culture of Corinth was at clearly at the throat of the Corinthian church. So our culture, Western culture, is at the throat of the church today. Not to mention, okay, the Corinthians share in our humanity. The weakness of their flesh is the weakness of our flesh. The temptations they encountered weren't specific to their day. We encounter them as well. And so as we approach this text we need to pay careful attention to Paul's warning. And we need to pay careful attention to his encouragement to believers in the middle of a sinful culture, battling these pressures, battling their flesh. Because uh, that we face that pressure 
as well. And that warning, that encouragement applies to us as well. So let's pray together as we uh, approach the text this morning. Lord, we look forward to hearing from your word, and we, we just pray that we would treasure it, we would take it seriously, and Lord, you would use it to change our hearts. May today's message be clear and honoring to you. Amen. So as we look at today's passage, we're gonna, it's going to be broken up into two main parts. So we're going to see first Paul's warning. The warning is this, the unrighteous, those living in patterns of sin, will not enter into God's kingdom. They'll be shut out. Okay, and then secondly, we'll look at Paul's encouragement to believers, that God's people have a new identity and new behavior through the gospel. So let's first take a look at Paul's warning. So as he mentioned earlier, he begins by questioning them. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven? So now that we know who Paul's addressing, we can ask ourselves, what is he telling them? What does he mean by this? Well, the phrase, or do you not know, is throughout 1 Corinthians. It occurs in several different places. And what he means each time he uses it is this. If you knew this thing that I'm about to tell you, and by the way, you should know it, then you would live differently. We find an example of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Paul writes there, Do you not know that in a race all the runners won, but all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. So Paul is telling the Corinthian church that if they knew the Christian life was like a, like a race, well, then they would run. They would want to finish well. They would want to win the prize. See there how Paul is connecting doctrine or truth with practice, with living it out. And in the context of our passage, Paul is doing a similar thing. He is rebuking the Corinthian church for having disagreements amongst themselves that have led to even dragging each other to court. And there's something that he wants these, these greedy, selfish people to know, or people who are acting out in greed. He wants them to know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. He believes that this truth will change their, how they live, will change their practice. Okay, so who are the unrighteous? Well, the unrighteous are those whose hearts and lives are not in right standing with God. The unrighteous are all those who have fallen short of God's perfect standard expressed in his holy law. We find a summary of this in Luke chapter 10. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So lest that we think that the unrighteous are those who didn't work hard enough, they uh, didn't put in enough good work. Um, Jesus instead attests that to be truly righteous, to truly follow all of God's law is to love neighbor, love God, and love neighbor perfectly. 
It's to love God with all of yourselves, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to consider your neighbor, all their trials, their needs, their joys, as if they were your very own. Truly, this law is a mountain that we cannot climb, that no mere human being can, uh, can scale. In fact, in our own strength, we cannot even begin to climb it. And Paul makes this so clear in Romans chapter 3. He writes there, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. See how he again and again was emphasizing none. There's nobody. He declares that the heart of natural man, talking about everybody from birth, is unrighteous and wicked without exception. Each of you has broken God's law in thought, word, and deed. And if we're talking about your own performance, you are the unrighteous person. As we'll see later in today's passage, it is only through the work of Christ on our behalf that we can be considered righteous before God. But also the standing of the, the unrighteous before God is expressed by their behavior. And this is such an important point. If you're not right with God through Christ, you will live in a way that matches that. You'll live unrighteously. And the reason why we cannot afford to miss this point, the reason that Paul's warning applies even to us, even to us here at Legacy, is that Paul isn't saying or questioning the fact that they believe in Christ or that they've said they believe or have faith in him. He's declaring that although they may be part of the church, although they may say they believe in Christ, by cheating one another, by acting selfishly and greedily towards even their brothers, they've denied their profession of faith and may have shown themselves to not be right with God, to be the unrighteous. So he, he rebukes them. He tells them, don't you know that the unrighteous are going to be shut out of God's kingdom? The way that you're living isn't testifying to God's work in you. It's testifying to the lack of God's work in you. It's testifying that you are still far off, that you haven't been made right with God, and that despite what you may say, you are still dead in your sins. Um, the Apostle John is so helpful on this relationship between faith and good works. Throughout 1 John, he again and again comes back to it. I'll read a couple of those for you. Um, first, in chapter 1 of 1 John, he writes, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. And then in chapter two, he writes, whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. And then in chapter three, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. If we take all these passages together, the meaning is crystal clear. You can't continue to live in darkness, to live selfishly without love for your brother. You can't continue to live in unrepentant sin, 
even if you say you're a believer, even, even if you attend church or have been baptized or whatever, and still be right with God. Again, we have to consider, we, ha- we, we need to be reminded that Paul is writing this warning, not to unbelievers. Uh, this isn't an evangelistic message. This warning has been given to a church. And what is the warning that Paul gives these people? What's the fate of those who have broken God's law and refuse to repent, who have refused to seek refuge in Christ? Well, Paul says that they won't enter into God's kingdom. Although there are many passages that talk about the present reality of a kingdom, a kingdom that has come with the first coming of Christ, with him being born in Bethlehem, the king coming to earth to begin his reign, though that's true, there is a present reality to the kingdom. Here, Paul is talking about the consummation or coming fullness of that kingdom. In our passage, he's talking about whether at the final judgment, these people will be shown to be hypocrites and shut out, shut out of heaven itself. And because this topic is so serious, Paul urges them, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So what is this deception that that Paul is warning them against? Why does he say, do not be deceived? Well, the Corinthian church is tempted to believe, and I think so are we, that you might just be able to separate doctrine and practice, faith from works, belief and action. They're tempted to believe that those who live unrighteously may just be able to get into God's kingdom. Because, well, they might say they have faith in Christ, they might be part of a church, and so on. And Paul attacks this lie head on. There's no ambiguity here. He tells them, the unrighteous will not enter God's kingdom. And and by the way, I'm going to list out for you what the lives of the unrighteous look like. I'm going to describe for you the things that characterize them, the kind of living that defines them. He says, make no mistake. If your life is characterized by these sins, I'm going to list them point by point. You are still in your sins and under God's judgment. You will be shut out of God's kingdom. And we're, we're going to, in a moment, walk through these and, and explain the different uh, qualities of the unrighteous that, that Paul lists but I think it's helpful for us to recognize the danger of believing the lie that the unrighteous will inherit God's kingdom. This is a lie that is so tempting, so tantalizing, because it offers what? Well, the promise of eternal security and also indulgence of our sin. The church, though, cannot afford to buy into this lie to grab hold of that temptation. Because if the church, church stops evaluating the testimony of its members, 
If it stops looking at their lives to discern whether they're in the faith or not, and instead puts its emphasis on, well, they said they're a Christian. They said they believed. Well, they've been baptized. Well, they regularly attend here. If instead the the focus starts to shift in that direction, the church may unwittingly be putting a stamp of approval on the testimony of its members that are actually headed for eternal destruction. Instead, our church has to have the courage to say with Paul, watch out, you are going the wrong way, brother or sister, know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom. And to help us make this evaluation, Paul, again, is going to list out for us uh, different descriptions of the unrighteous person. Um, First, we'll look at three descriptions that have to do with sexual sin. And, And these aren't, if you look at the passage, these aren't in order, uh, but they're grouped because of their similarity. So he lists the sexually immoral, adulterers, and homosexuals. And sexual dysfunction plays such a prominent role in Paul's list because, as we mentioned earlier, the, the culture of Corinth was steeped in it. And unfortunately, the church there was falling prey to it as well. So first, Paul lists the sexually immoral. The word here translated sexually immoral is the Greek word pornos. And it's probably pretty clear to you that, yeah, that's where we get our word pornography from. Uh, It's just a broad word that means uh, someone who is impure and commits uh, sexual sin and is sexually active in some way outside of marriage. And Paul also lists adulterers. And that that term is a little bit more specific. It's referring to um, those who are sexually immoral um, and break their marriage covenant, are unfaithful in some way. And then lastly, we have men who practice homosexuality. And, And as we look at these three descriptions, the sexually immoral, adulterers, and homosexuals, Well, what is our society's attitude towards those things? What is our culture's attitude towards these sins that God clearly hates and are symptomatic of unbelief? As I was thinking about this, I think a good term is zealous. Our culture is zealous for each of these things, for the spread of every impurity and sexual dysfunction. I mean, the use of pornography is now so widespread that a young man who has not been exposed to it is the exception. Faithfulness and commitment to marriage is trivialized and uh, often unfaithfulness to a spouse is portrayed as a revitalization of love. It's romanticized instead of being shown to be the destruction, uh, to be destructive like it really is. And the open practice of homosexuality and the you know, lesbian bisexual relationships has not only been celebrated by our culture, um, but it's been championed, not only by our culture, but by many churches as well. But as we see in Romans chapter one, and I, I would encourage you to, to turn there because uh, not only will we look at a little bit longer passage there now, but also um, a little bit later in the book of Romans as well. 
But as we see in Romans 1, homosexuality is not a sign of liberation. It's a sign of God's righteous judgment. So if you want to look at verses 24 through 27 of Romans chapter 1, read that for us. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So, instead of giving its people the antidote of true repentance and faith, which is what it really needs, many churches today are helping their members to hold a cup of God's wrath up to their lips and encouraging them to drink it down. As Christians, as a church body here at Legacy, we instead need to be champions, not of impurity, but of faithfulness and the beauty of God's design for marriage and for sex. We cannot allow soul-threatening sin to be seen as normal or excusable. And then we have idolatry. Although idolatry can take many forms, Paul is probably thinking of pagan practices associated with worshiping other gods in the city of Corinth. Think, Think of maybe making a sacrifice at a pagan temple. And this is why Paul rails against it so strongly. You know, you can't offer a sacrifice to a pagan deity and then turn around and offer a sacrifice to God. But more generally speaking, adultery is the worship of someone or something in the place of God, or it's prioritizing things over and above God. It does exist in our culture. It may not look like making a sacrifice at a pagan temple. It may take more subtler forms. Whereas the Greeks looked to other gods to provide security and prosperity, or even a clear conscience, we are tempted to look to money, possessions, careers, sports, or our reputation to provide the joy only the gospel can offer, to provide the security that only a sovereign God can. But instead, consider the attitude of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3. There he writes, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And then as we move into verse 10, I'll group together another uh, set of like terms. Thieves, the greedy, and swindlers. All these three are focused on material gain. They're focused on either jealously wanting something that's our neighbor's that we don't have, or on going out and getting it, taking it from our neighbor in some way. 
The greedy are those who always want more. They need more money. They need a better job. They need a bigger car. They need a nicer house. As we look at the world around us, we see a world that is spinning with discontentment. But the greedy, no matter how much they have, never stop to think about the needs of those around them. In our society, in a society in love with the American ideal of leisure, of wealth, of pleasure, we need to be reminded of the dangers of greed. This is what Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So what we may be tempted to believe is a harmless pursuit of security or prosperity may actually prove to be the very undoing of our faith. And we have thieves. Thieves are those, because they're greedy, who go out and take what isn't theirs, often by stealth. And this is a little bit different than swindlers. Um, The word that the ESV translates as swindler means someone who is ravenous like a wild beast. Um, When Jesus warns the crowds about false teachers in Matthew 7, he uses the same word. He says that although false teachers may look like sheep, they're really ravenous wolves. So swindlers, unlike those who steal stealthily, who take what isn't theirs when no one's looking, Swindlers steal by force, or they prey on others like a wild animal would. So yeah, this would include highway robbery. That was common in Paul's day. But also, in the context of our passage, it would include the Corinthian church who are cheating one another and dragging each other uh, to court. But instead of lusting after what isn't ours or going so far as to cheat or to steal to get it, Believers are called to seek contentment in Christ. They're called to use their resources graciously, recognizing that everything we've been given, has, uh, everything that we have has already been given to us. And besides, are we to greedily clutch our money, our time, when Christ himself has not hesitated to give his very life for us. And then we'll look at two more qualities of the unrighteous person. One of those is drunkards. Paul is referring to those who drink alcohol to excess and who then lose control of themselves. He's not, nor does the Bible anywhere, Uh, condemning just drinking alcohol in general. Well, no, uh, Jesus and the apostles drank and Jesus Jesus himself even turned water into wine in John chapter two. No, in our passage today, Paul is speaking of the one who regularly drinks so much that they don't have control over the things that they do or say. Instead of being mastered and led by the Holy Spirit, Those who get drunk become mastered and led by alcohol and give in to foolish or sinful impulses. 
And then we have revilers. To revile isn't a ver uh, uh, word that we use very often, is it? What it means, though, is to verbally abuse someone. It means to use, use words to cut down or demean someone in some way, either that's, you know, whether that's insulting them to their face or saying something bad about them behind their back. I think all of us have a tendency, because of our pride, because of our love for self, towards reviling. Men tend to blatantly insult each other. They tend to say uh, blatant insults and then pass it off as a joke, laugh about it, right? When in reality, it's again coming from that self-love, coming from pride. Women, on the other hand, have a tendency towards gossip, towards slandering, and then passing, passing it off as things they need to get off their chest or concerns they need to share, right? But contrary to this human inclination that I think we all experience, we feel that pressure on us to break others down. When we look at Christ, who was himself reviled, the one who deserved at least, the one who was dying for those who cursed him, what did he do? First Peter 2 tells us that he committed no sin. And neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And not only did he not revile his persecutors, but he prayed for them as he hung on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So as we take the Paul's warning, the complete warning, with all these descriptions into consideration, we need to ask ourselves, does this list of things that Paul says describe the unrighteous person describe me? Am I the one who's living in patterns of sexual sin, adultery, greed, drunkenness, or slander. And again, we have to ask ourselves this. Because the very gates of heaven themselves are at stake. They will shut in our faces if we deceive ourselves, if we go on claiming Christ and live as the unrighteous. Paul says, it will not work. Don't deceive yourself. You will be shut out. But then, as we come to verse 11, we find a source of comfort for a church who's just been considering their sins and failures. We find comfort for us as we have been considering our own sins and failures. This is Paul's encouragement he writes, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. He writes, and such were some of you, telling them, okay, these sins that I just listed, they used to define you. You are the one who used to be a thief. 
an adulterer, an idol worshiper. So Paul isn't just, it's not some far off description of people who are really bad, but no, he's giving this description to the church because it used to define who they were. And I think as we reflect on this list, as we consider it carefully, we'll find, yeah, this used to describe who, who we were. We were the unrighteous person who's going to be shut out of heaven. I think uh, many of us have a tendency to be quick to criticize the culture that we're in. And rightly so, we talked about that a lot. Our culture has some serious issues, right? It celebrates many of the things that God, in fact, hates. But we don't want to pass over the point that we used to be just like that. We are the ones who used to deserve God's judgment to be poured down on us. But here's the comfort. Paul doesn't say, unfortunately, this, well, it's, it's who you are. But he says, this is who you used to be and are no longer. You used to be unrighteous. You used to live in a way that was defined by the sins I listed, but no longer the case. That's not who you are anymore. Their identity used to be unrighteous, but now it is one who has been washed. Now it's one who has been sanctified. Now it's one who has been justified. And this identity is not based on what they do. It's not based on their conduct, but it's based on what God has done in them and for them. So the solution to their being unrighteous, to our being unrighteous, is not to work harder. It's not to do more unrighteous or to do more righteous deeds so that, you know, the good will outweigh the bad. And it's not even to do better with God's help. Because even the most obedient, hardworking, diligent believer continues to fall short of God's perfect standard. He continues to deserve judgment for his performance. No, we can't live perfectly. And when we fall short of perfect, we deserve not God's kingdom, but his judgment. The solution, the only solution to this problem is to receive by faith what Christ Jesus himself has already accomplished. The solution is to have Jesus' perfectly righteous life credited to us, to have Jesus' death counted as our very own. Tell me, as we look at this passage, as, as verse 11, how much room does Paul leave for us to contribute to our own salvation? How much room does he leave for us to work out our unrighteousness problem? Well, none. He doesn't leave any at all. He doesn't say, well, yeah, you were wicked, but you got yourself cleaned up. You washed yourself. You got yourself sanctified. And now you're good. Well, no, he says, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Meaning that these three works are being done to us by God. And so to find salvation from our sin, to find relief from our guilt, we need to turn our eyes away from our own performance to the work of God himself. 
as our passage says, they were washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. And the in the name part may, I think, throw us off a little bit as modern readers, right? But at the, the time in which Paul was writing, to say someone's name or to say in the name was understood to refer or to represent the person themselves. And thankfully, we have a lot of clear examples of this in other places in the New Testament. Um, consider what Peter says in, in Acts 10. He says, to him, talking about Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So Peter isn't saying, you know, if you say Jesus' name somehow or write it or whatever, that then you're going to be forgiven. Well, no, what he means by this is um, when he says through his name, what he means by that is in the person of Christ himself. That's where forgiveness is found. And so in our passage today, when Paul writes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he means in Jesus Christ himself. And as we'll look at washing, sanctification, and justification, we're going to again and again see that Jesus Christ and his work is at the very center of all three of those. And then Paul also writes that, um, this is done, or these works are done by the Spirit of our God. And the Spirit of our God is another, uh, is a phrase that means simply the Holy Spirit. So just as God accomplishes his work through Christ, and we receive those benefits by being found in him, so God applies that work to us by his Holy Spirit in us. So the first of these three works of God that Paul lists is washed. He says the Corinthians were washed. And God is so often gracious to, gracious to us to explain spiritual realities with terms that, or, or pictures that are so easy for us to understand, for us to grab hold of. This is one of them. We know what washing is. We do it every day. We see it all the time. It's using water to make something clean that was dirty. And although it can be an ordeal to get a bad stain out of, say, a suit, out of a, a nice dress, the washing that God does is far more important. It's far more costly. God forgives us of our sin through Christ Jesus and declares us to be clean. This is what the Apostle John writes in 1 John verse 9, or, uh, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And God doesn't accomplish this cleansing with water, but the very blood of his son. In chapter 7 of Revelation, we see a stunning picture of this. There we see the martyred saints described as having washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So somehow, miraculously, the sin-stained robes of the unrighteous become a brilliant white when submerged in Jesus' blood. 
the Corinthians were, we were sin-stained and had a black heart, but, but God has washed us, removing our guilt of sin and making us white as snow. And then Paul also says that the Corinthians were sanctified. And sanctified means to, to be made holy. And often when this when the term sanctified or sanctification is brought up, what's meant by it is a gradual growing in holiness over time. But here the meaning of sanctified isn't a gradual process, but a once for all work of God. Each of these three terms, washed, sanctified, and justified, all reflect what God does at conversion in the person being saved. So when a person places their faith in Christ, God unites them to his son, and they're considered to be holy. They're considered to be holy as Christ, his son, is holy. They become one of his holy people. The saints, the saints are not a club of amazing Christians who worked really hard and earned that title, okay? What saint means is holy one. And Paul, without reservation, um, declares every stripe a believer in the churches of Rome, Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, and Corinth to be saints. The reason that he uses this term so freely, applies it to all these believers of different cities, of different backgrounds, of different maturity levels, is that it's not based on performance. Being a, a saint isn't about working hard enough. It's based on the grace of God. As Hebrews 10.10 says, by the will of God, we, uh, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The Corinthians were, we were unholy, but God declared us to be holy ones. And then lastly, Paul assures the Corinthians that they had been justified. Just as sanctified means to be made holy, uh, justified means to be made or to be declared righteous. And just as our uh, holy standing doesn't come from us or what we do, but comes from Christ, so our righteousness doesn't come from what we do, but comes from being found in Christ. Justification is not God helping us to do better, do more. Justification is God declaring sinners to be righteous before him because of the righteousness of his son that has been credited to them. It's not given to those who deserve it. It's not given to those who need a little help. It's given to those who recognize their utter dependence on God and on his grace that he alone can deal with their sin through Christ. Um, if you uh, kept your place in Romans, I would encourage you to turn again there. We'll look at Romans chapter three and see a wonderful picture of justification. That's uh, Romans chapter three, verses 21 through 25. There Paul writes, 
But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So Paul declares that although before the law, again, we're talking about God's perfect standard of living, summarized by loving God with all your heart, loving neighbor with all of yourselves. Although, again, Paul declares that all have fallen short of that perfect standard and deserve God's condemnation, God's own righteousness comes to us, comes down to sinners apart from keeping the law. That's what Paul says here. It comes down to us as a free gift through the blood of Christ and needs only to be received by faith. Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, the holy one, the righteous one, lives and dies for sinners like us so that we might share in his perfect relationship with his father. As Peter says in 1 Peter 3, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And just consider again that this grace, this wondrous grace comes down to the sinner. It comes down to the one who is sin-stained, unholy and unrighteous. It comes down to those like the, in the Corinthian church, we already talked about, um, who continued to sin. It comes down to those like us who continue to sin. Just as sin was not a barrier to God's grace when we were saved, thankfully, sin cannot separate us from salvation, um, can separate us after salvation from God's love. Although the, we, we saw Paul clearly saying Christians who continue in patterns of unrepentant sin are in danger. They're in danger of being shut out of the kingdom. Although that's true, God's word also says that the Christian life will be one of struggling against temptation and often falling into it. Again, um, referencing 1 John John writes there, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then Paul describes the Christian life as a battle between the new man that God has made him to be in the the sinful flesh he still has in Romans 7. There he writes about doing the things he hates or sinning despite the fact that he has been changed by the gospel. So yes, okay, on one hand, Sin is dangerous. We need to run from it. Paul is so clear about that. It can ensnare us. Our love for it can destroy us. Even as believers, even here at Legacy, we can't afford to just ignore that point. We don't want to go astray without being called back by God's word or by one another. But on the other hand, okay, consider 
how patiently God deals with us as sinners, as sinners then, as sinners now, that he should save us, that he should give us uh, his spirit and then continue to guide us and lovingly correct us as we stumble at times in sin. How good is he? Well, we should also be encouraged though that although we keep sinning, yeah, it's true, we have a new identity. That's not who we are anymore. We were adulterers, sexually immoral, thieves, slanderers. We were defiled, unholy, unrighteous, but God made us clean. He washed our sins away. He made us saints and declared us to be righteous in his perfect son. We are no longer children of Satan. We're no longer dead in our sins. And Paul is reminding the Corinthians of their new identity. Why? Because he wants them to live in light of it. He wants them to embrace that identity. So a farmer, when he comes in from the field and he uh, gets ready for a wedding, puts on a nice suit, he doesn't go back out to the pigsty to work with pigs, does he? No, he doesn't. A man wearing wedding clothes doesn't belong, nor would he even think of working with pigs. A believer who's in Christ, who's been declared to be right before God, doesn't belong in sin either. Although it may be true that he loses track of his new identity for a time. But Paul is reminding them of exactly that point. Because we've been declared to be pure, holy, and righteous through Christ, we should strive for those things. We should strive for purity, for holiness, and for righteousness. We should strive for those things out of love and thankfulness for the incredible work of God that has um, come to us when we were sin sinners, how God has rescued us lovingly, graciously from our sins. But if instead, as you're listening to this, you found that you are the unrighteous person that Paul is talking about, if instead you found um, you either haven't professed Christ at all or found that you've deceived yourselves, that you are a hypocrite who's, who's still far off, know that the gospel is about God welcoming in the sinner, about him washing clean the one who is impure, about him declaring unholy, uh, declaring holy and righteous, the unholy and unrighteous in his son. As Clay reminded us last week, unworthy sinners are exactly the ones that Jesus came to save. In fact, the only requirement for salvation is that we bring our sin to him. Again, as we saw last week, Matthew wasn't called by Jesus because Matthew was so special. No, Matthew was a despised tax collector. He made his money cheating other people. No, Jesus called Matthew because Matthew was a sinner and Jesus was gracious. As we sung today, Jesus was fair. He was lovely. That's the reason that he called Matthew. And so does God call you by his word. He calls you to repent of your sins and to believe upon his son, the Lord Jesus Christ.
And if you do, he will wash you, sanctify you, and justify you as the holiest of saints ever has been. Because God will see you as perfect in his son. Let's pray together. God, I just pray that we would be able to consider carefully the, the totality of this passage today, both the, the bad news and the good news. Um, God, give us a deeper and deeper realization of our sin, an ability to discern our lives, to look into our hearts and see whether we in fact know you or not. But praise God, we, we thank you so much that at the end of the day, our salvation is based on what Christ has done and not what we have done or what we have to do. That is the greatest of reliefs, the most wonderful of messages that there ever could be. Um, help us to respond to that with joy, with, with peace, with assurance, with, uh, with a commitment to uh, be full of love and thankfulness for what you have done and, and to walk in light of it, God. But keep our eyes on Christ and his work. Keep our eyes on his loveliness, on um, his graciousness towards sinners. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.